Let's read from verse 14. Ephesians 6 from verse 14. Hear the words of the living God. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We ask, Lord, that you now would humble us, help us, and encourage us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Taking God at His Word, wrote the following. He says, several years ago, there was an anonymous article in Christianity Today entitled, My Conversation with God. Here is how it began. Does God still speak? I grew up hearing testimonies about it, but until October 2005, I couldn't say it had ever happened to me. I'm a middle-aged professor of theology at a well-known Christian university. I've written award-winning books. My name is on Christianity Today's masthead. I've taught that God still speaks, but I couldn't testify to it personally. I can only do so now anonymously for reasons I hope will be clear. A year after hearing God's voice, I still can't talk or even think about my conversation with God without being overcome by emotion. Kevin DeYoung continues and he says, It's a fine story in many ways, except in this crucial way. It gives the impression that God does not normally speak to us personally. The article leaves us feeling as though God speaking to us through the scriptures is an inferior, less exciting, less edifying means of communication. We can't help to conclude, yes, the Bible is important, but oh, what a treasure it would be if I could experience God speak to me, really. If only I could hear from the sure and infallible voice from God, of God, end quote. So here's a small test for us. When's the last time God spoke to you? It's a bit of a trick question, but... Hopefully not after that, <laughs> that introduction, okay? Well, if you're thinking biblically, the last time God spoke to you was right now when we read Ephesians 6, that you are to put on the belt of truth, that you are to wield the shield of faith. And before that, God spoke to you that you are to forgive 77 times. And if you do not forgive, the Heavenly Father will cast you into hell. That's, the, that's what God said right before I read Ephesians 6. That's what God said to you. Because this is his word to you personally. God speaks to you directly through it. And the piece of the armor we're going to study is, is meant to correct some of our misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit and the Bible and how those two work together, the sword of the Spirit. So we're going to organize our thoughts around three obstacles. There are three obstacles you and I would need to overcome if we are to wield the sword of the Spirit effectively against the enemy. Three obstacles we would need to overcome if you and I are to pick up the sword and wield it and stand upon it. Intellectual, spiritual, and practical obstacles. So the first obstacle, the big obstacle, and I would say especially in Porch and in the university, are intellectual 
obstacles we would need to overcome if we are to wield the sword. The Christian sword is often not used because of the lies people believe about the sword, or maybe even Christians believe about the sword. The devil wants you to be at a place where you think that this Bible, this sword of the Spirit is dull, blunt, ineffective, or just not the sword of the Spirit. Maybe just a sword on the left, but not the sword of the Spirit. And again, that's why there are many intellectual obstacles. Those are the objections people raise against the Bible being the Word of God. Intellectual obstacles are those objections people raise to say, this is not the Word of God. Now, if there's one thing you can count on in every single generation, it's this, that the devil will attack the Bible. The devil will attack the Word of God. In every generation... The Bible will be abused, manipulated, twisted, cast doubt upon. That was, was that not the very first temptation? Did God really say? And his tactics haven't changed. It wears new clothes, right? But his tactic is the same. Doubting God's word. Doubting, not maybe, maybe, not doubting that it's God's word, but doubting that it's good. I know God said, don't have sex before marriage, but, but really, we love each other. Or did God really say, does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? Really, is that really what it says? So after the doubt comes the twisting, the distorting, or the denying of God's word. After he asks, did God really say? He then says, God did not say. You will not surely die, Eve. Directly contradicting the Bible. I know that the Bible looks like it says that homosexuality is a sin, but Paul didn't have a good understanding of how committed homosexual relationships look like in our day. And that's why he condemned it in that time, right? Or the twisting of God's word to say, if you just had enough faith, then you would be healthy, then you would be rich. So the only reason you are poor and sick is because you don't have faith. So what dangerous times, beloved, we are living in. If the devil can cause you to stop trusting the Bible, stop believing it, stop studying it, stop trusting it for yourself, the fight is over. The fight is over. You've lost. Remember, what, what do we say about every piece of the armor? The, the armor basically begins and ends with the same piece of the armor. Right? It begins with the belt of truth ends with the sword of the spirit which is the word of god jesus prayed in john 17 verse 17 sanctify them in the truth your word is truth and that's why if you look at every piece of the armor it's dependent it's it's dependent upon the word of god we need the bible without the bible we have nothing we can't pray correctly. We can't exercise or practice righteousness. We don't have faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The helmet of the hope of salvation. We don't know what heaven is going to be about without the word. Without the word, we have lost everything. So the devil tactics haven't changed. He just wears new clothes. Call it liberalism, postmodernism, secular feminism. There's a good feminism, but there's secular feminism or atheistic evolution. 
Whatever the clothes are, the goal is the same, to cause you to stop trusting the Bible as reliable and true and upon which you can build your life. So how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? How can you know that this book really is trustworthy of your faith and your eternity? Well, there are many angles you can take, so I'm going to show you a couple of those angles and then rest on one that I think is the Trump one, in my opinion. Right, the one angle is the, st- the statistic route you can go. Right, just, this, just the statistics. Sorry, it's a tongue twister there. Of the Bible is, is absolutely mind-blowing. The Bible written over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages. Imagine doing that with any other book. Any other book. Would you get the same message? And here we have the central theme, the uniting theme of the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. All agree. In other words, if you just look at the harmony of the Bible, the consistency of the Bible, the beauty of how these 66 books tell one story, you can only conclude that this must be the Word of God. Or you can take the prophetic route. If you look at the the prophecies of the Bible, very detailed, specific prophecies, for example, in the book of Daniel about Alexander the Great and Rome, and if you then just look into history and see that it happened to the T, or the prophecies regarding Jesus himself, where he will be born, how he will live, how he will die, that he will be raised on the third day, all from the Old Testament, you have to stop and say, this must be a book who has as its author God himself. Or perhaps you can try the eyewitness approach, the another angle. The gospel accounts, for example, are a collection of books written by eyewitnesses which are confirmed or in the presence of other eyewitnesses that Jesus died and rose again. That was the united testimony of the early church and all of them died for it. They were willing to be crucified themselves for that testimony. Right? So if it was fake, if it was fabricated, if it was the, the body of Jesus was stolen, then who would say, yes, yeah, sign me up for crucifixion. I'm ready to go. Now, those are just, all of them are logical arguments. And God sometimes is pleased to use merely logical arguments to convince someone of the truth of the Bible and bring them to Christ. But I believe the greatest proof, the only way you'll be fully assured is to read the Bible for yourself. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There's a kind of knowing that is not merely intellectual. It, it, it includes intellectual, your, your, your mind, but it's a deeper knowing, a knowing of taste, a knowing of experience. For example, how do you know honey is sweet? Do you know the facts, all the statistics of honey and how, how big its sugar contents are? And have, Do you know that? But yet you know for a fact honey is sweet. Why? How? Well, you've simply tasted it. And you say, well, I don't know a lot about honey, but this I know. It's sweet. Or how do you know the Grand Canyon is big? Right? Do you know how deep it is? Do you know how wide it is? Do you have all the facts? Do you have all the statistics? Right? And you can even 
give the gives a skeptic that says, okay, the Grand Canyon isn't that big. You're over-exaggerating. It's like, no, listen, here's all the facts. Here's the statistics. It's that deep. It's this wide. You have to believe me. So, oh, okay, that's interesting. They turn around, walk away unaffected, unchanged. Or you can say, do you want to come with me to the Grand Canyon? I just want to show you something. Right? And the person just looks and says, okay, I believe you. Not because of the facts or what you've told me, but I've seen for myself. And remember that man that Jesus healed from blindness in John 9, right? The Pharisees pushing him and saying, tell us, what do, you, what do you say about this man? Who is he? He says, I don't know, but this I know. I once was blind, but now I see, right? And that's kind of how I would say the majority of our Christian testimony would be like. You know what? I'm not the smartest person alive. I don't have all the facts, all the details, all the statistics, and the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. But I, this I know. I once was lost and now I'm found. So our greatest argument is a person, is the Lord Jesus himself. I want to read to you a quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller in his sermon, The Ultimate Argument, so you can guess what that's about, okay, shared this quote from Ronald Watson and he wrote, or he preached and he said, I found that Jesus was full of surprises but they are all the surprises of perfection. Just love that. Just let that sink in. Jesus is full of surprises, but I found that they were all the surprises of perfection. I found tenderness without being weak, strength without being coarse, lowliness without being servile. He had conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without fanaticism, holiness without Phariseeism, passion without prejudice, This man alone never made a false step. No one has yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said. End quote. So you and I don't have a watertight argument. We have a watertight person. And so I believe one of the best ways to win a skeptic to Christ is to invite them in. Ask them if they would be willing to just simply over lunch, over coffee, read the Bible with you. Read the Gospel of Mark and say, do you just want to read this with me? And if you have any questions, ask that and let's just read this together. Read the Gospel of Mark, for example, and let the Scriptures convince them. Let the Holy Spirit shine in their hearts. Now, that doesn't mean that if you do that, that automatically means someone will be saved and someone will, will definitely believe. Remember, even people who physically saw Jesus, all his miracles, listened to all his te- teachings, yet did not believe. So you can give them all the proof, all the evidence, and people will still say, not for me. Because people suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. People love the darkness more than the light. So if you give them everything, they will still say and reject God unless, as Jesus says in John six forty four, unless no one can come to me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is a work of God when someone comes to Christ. And he uses us. So those are the intellectual objections. And my suspicion is that that would not be many of you here this afternoon. But there is a second one that I think is more common amongst believers. And this is the second obstacle we need to overcome. Is That's a spiritual uh, obstacle. A spiritual obstacle. Now, I'm calling it a spiritual obstacle because of our misunderstanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the Bible and in its use of the Bible. 
Notice again, Paul interprets for us. I love that. Don't you love that when the Bible just tells us what it means so you don't have to try to guess? So here, the same thing in verse 17. Take the sword of the Spirit. If Paul didn't clarify this, there would be a thousand views of what that would have meant, right? But he says, which is the Word of God. So why does Paul call the Word of God the sword of the Spirit? What is the relationship between the Bible and the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible itself tells us, right? 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Other words, the words of Scripture... The final product of those original manuscripts, those Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts, when they were finalized, when the final dot was penned, those are the words of the Holy Spirit to you and me. This is the doctrine of inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration of the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired, and I I think there's sometimes a misunderstanding here, not the author's but their writings. He guided the authors, but the words are inspired. The very words, the end product of their writings are the very words of God. Most of the time, God did not tell these authors verbatim what to say, right? There were exceptions like Moses, where God would tell him verbatim what to write and what to say. But normally, God allowed the human authors and their personalities and their research and their interviews with eyewitnesses to write their account. And yet, in that whole process, the Holy Spirit was guiding to ensure that it was without error, perfect, inspired, the very words of our God. Now, here's the obstacle. We tend to split that. We tend to say, we, we split the voice of God from the voice of and the words of the Bible. We split that. We divorce those two things. We don't read this book as if it's God speaking to you at that very moment. Like that professor from Christianity Today, we think this, that to hear God speak to us through the Bible is just less significant, less exciting. And that's the obstacle, because if you are always seeking God's voice outside of the Bible, guess what you will do with the Bible? Not read it. Definitely not study it. Right? Not do the hard work of don't understand what this verse means. So you're looking in, in context of what it says and you're trying to, to in prayer ask God to open your eyes that you might understand what this book means and says. Why would you do that if you just hear his voice outside of the Bible? You would never have that desperateness of what Deuteronomy says. Right? That Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You would never have that desperateness. But if you do see this book as the sword of the Spirit, the word that is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, what will you do with this book? Oh, you will treasure it. You would love this book more than bread, more than food, more than life, because in it you hear God speak to you. This is how we hear God speak to us and we respond in prayer, in communion with God. Beloved, don't split 
the voice of the Holy Spirit from the pages of the Bible. This is a marriage that is permanent. This marriage will not be dissolved between the Holy Spirit and the Bible. The Spirit today no longer inspires the Word. He illuminates the Word. He opens, He helps us to understand it. So when we open this book, we do that in reliance on the Holy Spirit. We, we pray and we ask, Holy Spirit, help me. Teach me through this book. May I understand it. May it change my heart and my life. So we don't look for fresh revelation outside of the Bible. We don't run around for a word from God because we already have his words. I love, this should be our attitude of Deuteronomy 30, right? Deuteronomy 30 verse 11. Moses talks to the people of Israel and he says this, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God's words are not far from you, beloved. It's close to you. It's in your hands. So use it. So those intellectual obstacles are overcome when we know the facts about the Bible and when we read it for ourselves and we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And the spiritual obstacle is overcome when we never split, never divorce the voice of the Holy Spirit with the voice and the words of Scripture. And, but lastly, there's also the very many practical obstacles we would need to overcome to be able to wield the sword. Now again, I think most of us would agree that this is the, the word of God without error. And we believe that the Spirit speaks to us personally through the word. And yet we're just too busy. There's just too many things on our calendar. There's just too many other things that are just a little bit more entertaining, a little bit more joy-giving than this book of genealogies. If, you, if you're in Genesis and Leviticus, or not Leviticus, Second Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, right? Beloved, you, you might be Patrick under a rock if you don't know that we are living in a distracted age. A distracted age. So that's the first of the practical obstacles. We are easily distracted. The first thing we often look at in the morning is our phone, social media, WhatsApps, messages. We go to the bathroom and we take our phones out and we, we scroll and we watch ma- mindlessly. Right? Every, every silent moment of our day is swallowed up by our phones and by our entertainment. And what's happening is you and I are giving the cream of our attention, not to God, but to entertainment. It is simply always more fun to watch a new, the new episode on Netflix than it is to read one of the genealogies. It will always be more interesting to watch images which are edited to perfection than to read and to look into sentences and to think about grammar and how these grammar sentences are working together. But beloved, that's, I would say that's exactly our problem. The Bible was never meant to primarily entertain you. That's not its purpose. It was meant to lead you to repentance, to lead you to God. God's word is not primarily to entertain us. I say primarily because if you've ever read the book of Esther or Judges, it's, there's some entertaining things to read. Okay, Don't skip those books. 
Go for it. Even tonight, if you want to just see what I'm talking about, go. Okay? But that's not its primary purpose. It's primary to teach you, comfort you, equip you, train you in righteousness. And all of those things are hard work. It's going to be hard work to take this book and study it and apply it. Now, even though it's not primarily entertaining, the Bible is primarily for your eternal joy. Your eternal joy. Psalm 16 verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus said, John 15 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. But the key difference between that joy that we find in God's word is that it only comes after the sweat of hard work. It doesn't come beforehand. I wonder how many hands would go up if I ask you, how many times do you went to your quiet times, not really wanting to, but afterwards so thankful, so content, so joyful that you did it, that you heard God speak to you, that his word is that you're hearing it afresh for yourself. I love this quote from Richard Baxter. He says, you shall find this to be God's usual course, not to give his children the taste of his delights, Till they begin to sweat in seeking after them. That's God's usual means and way of blessing us, not before the hard work, but after the hard work. And so, beloved, the only way for us to really overcome this obstacle of distraction is to overcome our unbelief of God's word, our unbelief that this book is not really going to make us joyful and content, like this thing that we want to substitute it with. Now, just to be very clear, lest you hear what I'm not saying, I do believe entertainment has its place. It's like chocolates, okay? Chocolate has to have a a place in our lives, right? It's good to just enjoy sometimes relaxing and watching something and, and being entertained. But you cannot live on that. You cannot, I know this is going to be upsetting, you cannot live on chocolates, okay? But it's so good to just relax and eat that chocolate and then watch something, right? To have that. But you need, I mean, you can't live on chocolate. You can't even live on bread alone. You do need, desperately, the very words of God. You need that nutrition, the healthy, steady, frequent diet of God's word that is healthy for you. It makes you strong. That's why we should regularly pray things like this in Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart to your word, to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Psalm 119, 36. Lord, take this wandering heart. Incline it. That first thing in the morning, I would look for you. And that last thing in the night, I would look for you. And my heart would just be inclined that if I'm busy with something else, that you would always be in my field of vision, that I would long to have fellowship and communion with you as frequently and, and, and frequently as possible. To have the attitude of the blessed man of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who, de- who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates only in the morning. Okay? I know you know what the rest of That's not what it says, okay? It says who meditates on his law day and night. Day and night. Dear church, repent of your unbelief. Turn away from thinking that something other than the Bible can really satisfy you. 
So that's the first one, distraction, right? Let's be careful. Let's watch out. And, and be sure, because we're in the spiritual war, the devil will add many of the distractions, right? We already have our slothful flesh, tired bodies, sinful hearts, and here comes the devil with cherry-picked um, substitutes for you. Do you see how hard this is going to be? But here's, in that light, here's another obstacle, and I want to call this sacred substitutes. Beware of sacred substitutes when it comes to the Bible. Now, we use the word sacred because this is when we substitute our direct reading of the Bible with something good. Like a good Christian book, devotionals, podcasts, Christian music, sermons. Here's the key thing to remember in all of that. You cannot wield somebody else's sword in a war. You can only pick up the sword you have for your war. You need to have first-hand knowledge of this book. Now, Bible teachers have their place. Devotionals have their place. Podcasts and online sermons have their place. Good Christian books have their place. But nothing should displace your own frequent, regular diet of the Bible yourself. So for that, maybe you just need to reorder your priorities. What should come at the top? And then the second good thing, and then the third good thing. Let me close with just some last practical advice, practical suggestions as well. So I would say one of the most important things for you to do is to plan your devotions. Plan it. When, where, and what. Specifically. Specifically. Don't be vague. John Piper said this. I think it's very, very true. He says, if you say, I'll read whenever I get a chance, there's no chance. If you say that, it's not going to happen. When? Give me the date. Give me the time. Could you take five minutes tonight before you go to bed to plan tomorrow? When are you going to pick up your Bible and read? When are you going to pray? When are you going to do that? Is it going to be 5 a.m.? Are you going to skip breakfast and do that? Are you going to sit longer in the car before you go out to work and then read? When? Plan it. You have to be specific. If it's vague, it's not going to happen. Decide on the place. So that's the time, right? I've mentioned the car, right? But where can you be unhindered? Where can you be in your closet? Where can you be alone with God? Plan the place. Susanna Wesley, she's the mother of John and Charles Wesley, had 16 children, right? So house moms, I think I'm seeing only Deborah here. Forgive me if you're a house mom, okay? She understands, Liffy, how you feel, okay? Now, she taught her children that if they walk into the kitchen with her apron over her head, that they should leave her alone because she's spending time with the Lord. That was her closet. That was the only place she could be alone. So she literally made a closet. So that saying is so, so true. Where there's a will, you'll be, there's a way. You would be desperate. I just need to be alone. Sorry, guys, I'm out. I'm going to take a half an hour bathroom break, break right? <laughs> or whatever, right? Or whatever you're going to do, there's going to be a sense of, Lord, I need to be alone with you. But don't just do the time and the place. Decide on the what. It, I don't know if this happened to you. Sometimes, if you don't have a plan, like what you're going to read, 
you, you have your time, you have your place, you stare at the Bible and you say, okay, now where do I start? What do I read? And okay, maybe I'll just read this book now, right? Or maybe I'll just listen to a Christian song or maybe I'll just do, and, and suddenly the sacred substitute has happened. What are you going to read? Now, for me personally, maybe it's left brain thing, but I really feel it really works well is to have a good Bible reading plan, a schedule that can help you keep on track. Find one that you like. Find one that will give you a balance of both Old and New Testament. Find one that, that just keeps you, even if you skip a day, you know where to, where to go on from when you've missed a day. But beloved, these things need to be planned. So whatever you have decided in 2023, whatever your resolutions are, your New Year's resolutions, or what you really want to achieve this year, I know many of us have probably many goals and many things we're looking forward to. But may this be at least very close to the top. That we want to be people that grows in our personal, first-hand knowledge of the Bible itself. That we would be people that increases in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus himself, that we would increase in loving him, becoming more like him, and reflecting him to a world that needs his words. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your providence, that this text has landed so close in the new year, in 2023. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to plan and to decide and to discipline ourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Lord, may we strive and toil for these things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to memorize your word at key moments so that we can wield the sword of the Spirit to kill our sin, to resist the lies and the temptations of the devil, and that we might be holy as you are holy. So, Father, in your grace, fulfill these resolves, and may we do this, Lord, for your name's sake and for fellowship with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.